Well, it's a pleasure to be here sharing the Word of God with you this morning. If you have a Bible of some sort, you can go ahead and get ahead of the game and find Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. That's what we're going to be reading from this morning. I tend to read in the NIV, but whatever version you have will work fine. should have that up on the screen as well. As you're preparing for that, um, I wanted to, to recall a little bit as I... I prayed and thought about where God was leading us this morning, uh, I kept coming back to a couple things. One was um, the message that I gave a couple weeks ago and also my home group. I'm part of a home group and we share uh, together. We're, we're able to share our lives and to read uh, the Word of God and to grow. And I hope that you have some group that you're a part of where you can be discipled and disciple as well, to be mentored and to mentor. And in that, we talked about that passage, Philippians chapter 2, and we're reading through that book, and it's a great experience to share with each other. And so those things came to my mind and, and, and heart to continue on and lead into the Advent. And so we're going to pull those things together. But I pulled up, I mentioned last time I preached a couple weeks ago that I have a plant that is a citrus plant. And some years from now, it's supposed to bear some kind of Myers lemon. I like sour things, and it's supposed to be a sweeter lemon, but it's still going to be tart, and I'm excited for that in whatever decade that happens. But I bought this. It's been about uh, eight months since I've gotten it. And on it, it had these thorns. I didn't really know that at the time, which is fine. Um, but it had these actually quite effective thorns. And so I thought I'd bring it up this morning, you know, so you could see it. I like visual things that keep me, me focused. So hopefully it'll be something kind of a reminder as I'm talking. But in that, it had those thorns. And, and like I said, I went through it. Uh, I got tired of... You know, as I going through picking up the leaves that were brown, I got tired of, um, you know, getting stabbed. So I went through and I dethorned um, as much as I can with it and keep up with it. Um, and that last, that message mentioned the example that God uh, gives us, allows us to, to find freedom from fear through his love. That as God first loved us, there's that example of what real love is, what real infinite love is, and how when we find that, we are freed, sometimes over time, from, from being in fear. That yes, we're called to respect who God is, but also to rest and trust in Him. That is faith. Faith isn't theology, it's not a set of ideas or dogma. Faith is trust in. And you can have faith in anything. You can have faith in money. You can have faith in, in popularity. You can have faith in your own strength. You can have faith in anything. But God calls us to trust in his love. And with that comes, obviously, respect for who God is and the example that God sets before us. And so as we lead into all these things, I am going to be spoiling a little bit, giving some Bible spoilers for Christmas and Easter, but I got to tell you, the book's been out for a couple millenniums, so I hope that you read it. If you haven't, that's great. I'll be happy to introduce you some of the concepts, but we're going to be talking a little bit about Advent and leading into that, and also Easter, and yeah, it's a little bit of the cart before the horse, but this passage um, has a great job of sharing those ideas with us. 
So if you can go ahead and stand as we read the Word of God, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Would you read with me this morning? Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or taken advantage of, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we've been taught to say, thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, when I read this passage and I heard about it, and we talked about it in, in, our, in our home group, and there's a lot to unpack on this. There have been, there's been a lot of ink spilled on the theology and, and how we view Christ and the Trinity and all those different aspects of, of who God is and the mechanics of how God works and how Christ, the Word of God, became Christ, Messiah, incarnate, fully God, fully human amongst us. A lot of ink's been spilled on that. And we're not going to go very deep into that part of it for a couple of reasons. One is time. It would take, all, that could be a whole sermon series is just going through that passage or a whole class to break down what it's trying to say there and ways we can learn from that about who God is. And that is a worthy endeavor. But this passage has something deeper than the theology. It has an example. The prime point is the example of how God works and how we can follow and, and Christ's example in our own lives and the choices that we make and the ways that we live. The theology is important, but the practice and how we love and how we live is so much more important for understanding these words and, and how we live out our lives. Uh, as we look at this passage I, I, and the plant that I have in front, I'm reminded of the human nature to guard, to protect. I look at like a castle, a fortress, right? In the, in the beginning, uh, fortresses were ditches or palisade walls with sticks and lumber. And as we got more advanced, we had more time. Those, those fortresses became bigger with mountain baileys and, and stone walls. And you get to the traditional you know, medieval castle with thick, thick walls. Even Jerusalem back in, in antiquity had, had thick walls that made it really hard to conquer. And you get those concentric circles where you start with a small, relatively speaking, fortress. And then we get bigger as the cities would grow. They get bigger and bigger. If you've ever been to Europe, you can still see uh, the effects of that. You can see how the cities don't make a lot of sense. And that's on purpose. They're laid out to, to be confusing to, to enemies as they conquer. And the walls get in the way of modern transportation. And they're not designed like American cities. All of our cities are young. And they're designed on grids, and they make a lot more sense. And, and yet those cities were, were meant to defend. 
And we look at that guard, even when you get up to like Napoleonic age, as black powder comes in, you have star fortresses, so they use earth to deflect, and you get to the modern era. We think we don't have castles anymore, but we have bunkers. With the modern era, with nuclear war and, and smart bombs, we have uh, underground bunkers, and the more you want to protect, the more you're, you're, you're in fear of how someone's going to attack. You go deeper and deeper. You get places like NORAD in Colorado, where it's in a mountain, a granite mountain, to protect itself. And so you look at the, the ways in which we, we guard. It's that human nature to, to guard, to protect against outsiders, to protect against threat. And in addition to that, we know that the greatest offense is a good, or the greatest defense is a good offense. Gave it away there. The greatest uh, defense is a good offense. So a big part of our defense, right, a, a big part of how we guard ourselves is to seek out and to obtain power and prestige and control. And we do that for lots of different reasons. Some of them well-meaning, some of them not. We do it sometimes to protect and to mold the world, or at least the world around us, to try to make it better. Uh, sometimes we do it simply to avoid pain or hurt or discomfort or embarrassment. But in that, in that example of how we live life day to day, in, in building up those fortresses and building up those walls in ways we find preemptive ways to attack threats. There are a few questions that are begged to contrast between our nature in this passage. And the first one is this, as followers of Jesus Christ, who are outsiders to us? Who do we shut the door on? Because if you look at a castle, the point of that gate, the point of the door, whatever that might be in Norad, it's like a vault door, right? And the point of that is to keep people out, to keep those threats out. And in a modern, in a medieval castle, it's literally to keep people from coming in that were threats. And most of the time, the castle would be open for commerce. But the castle doors would shut to protect who and what was loved or valued. And so we look at that idea of a fortress, we look at that door being shut. As Christians, as followers of Christ, who is on the outside of the door to us? Who are the outsiders? We look at the, the example of Christ. Who are outsiders to Christ? Jesus desires that none should be lost. We look at the lost sheep, the lost coin, the efforts, the great efforts that, that Jesus did in his ministry and the apostles did to go everywhere, to find everyone, to call everyone to to come to him, to seek him, to leave that door wide open. And yes, not everybody will partake in that. Some will be unrepentant. Some will be finally unrepentant. And will stay outside that castle, will stay outside of the presence of Christ. But we go back to the, the walls that we build and the fortresses that we create. Who are outside? Who are outsiders? Who are we guarding against? The second question is, as the Word became flesh, we look at Advent, we look at Christmas, the time of celebrating the coming of Christ. As the Word becomes flesh, as God became human, what defenses, what advantages did Christ take for himself? What power did he take on? 
He came as a baby, made himself nothing, made himself servant-like, humbled, took on a painful and humiliating death at the cross, and it's all laid out in this passage. This passage is just the whole thing in one shot right there. It's very, very easy to, to read through it and see the whole layout of God's plan to bring us to salvation. But we look at the example of Christ. What advantage did Christ take? In the incarnation of Christ, we become vulnerable. We look at the baby Jesus. We look at the place that Jesus comes to in Bethlehem. We look at the parents that he had. We look at all the aspects of who Christ is and we celebrate Emmanuel. We look at complete vulnerability, complete vulnerability and a refusal to exert superficial power, right? We see that it echoed, not just his baby form, but as Jesus grew in stature and understanding, he still rejected in the temptation of the desert, right? He still rejected the exertion of power for his own benefit, the abuse of that, the idea that, that God would be brought about simply by force, all right? And we see that in the cross, submitting himself to that. We see the example of God becoming human and being vulnerable, choosing to participate in that. We contrast how Christ and God became merely human with the Roman emperors, right? That would have been very keen in their mind. They would have seen Roman emperors, mere people, mere men. We know that now, right? We can see that now. But their idea was that as the Roman emperors of the day who were merely human claiming to be gods, we see the true God choose to become man. I, uh, I look at nature and I, I, I love learning things. My son has all these books about animals and we learn, actually I learn a lot about real random animals that I don't know a lot of facts about. But it's very interesting because as you see animals, as you see, learn more about how they work, how they operate, you see in them that a lot of the ones that are the most puffed up, the ones that have the biggest plume or, or have that, those defenses and they make themselves puffed up, are oftentimes the ones that carry the least threat. They're the least secure in who they are. They puff themselves up because they're scared, because they're, they're pretending to be something that they're not. I see that in the emperors. I see puffery. I see fake. I see a facade. I see that in, in sometimes how we operate, that we try to get things or get status or get power and prestige to become greater than we really are with the idea of exhibiting that to control the world, sometimes for, for well-meaning intentions, sometimes for not. But when we're truly secure in Christ, when we're truly secure in who we are, that puffery should fade away. Humility comes on. We see that in that participating in the greatness of Christ, we become lesser. We recognize who we really are and who God really is. And that is that part of Advent, the anticipation and celebration of the coming of Emmanuel, God with us. God opened the gates to all of us, even though he knew we would hurt him. He still let us in because he loved us and he loves us, continues to, to work in that way, continue to open um, 
he was open in that, so we have a path to, salva to salvation. That door is open. Because the threat isn't people. It's not other people. From a Christian perspective, the threat isn't others. Our fight isn't against flesh and blood, it's against evil. Not people, not other children of God. Even if they don't recognize the children of God, even if they don't act in any way like it, they are still children of God, and our war is not with them, but the things that separate them and separate us from Christ. So what does Christ-like vulnerability look like? There's a general principle that I always try to keep in mind, and that is innocent as doves and shrewd as snakes, that as we move forward, yeah, we're not called to be stupid or to act with, without a greater purpose, right? Faith is can be stupid. Some people will have faith, like I said, in all kinds of stupid things, but God doesn't call us to stupid faith or to stupid actions. He calls us to stewardship and discernment, but also risk. As we're called to, to, to be wise and to be aware of our world and our surroundings, we're also called, we're not called to comfort or ease. We're called to risk. We're called to live a life that can be often vulnerable. Can, we can expose ourselves to sometimes hurt and pain in following the example of Christ. That's that whole, take up the cross and follow me. That, those words seem empty because we haven't seen a crucifixion, right? The, the, the embodiment of that, the shame of that, the, the pain of that is somewhat lost on us today. But we haven't seen that. But those words back then would be chilling. Absolutely chilling. And we kind of get our mind around that. But imagine having seen one. Imagine being a Roman citizen of the day or a Jewish person actually seeing what that means to take on that cross and to follow the example of Christ. To be vulnerable in that. To be willing to follow Christ in that. Evangelistic. So as we look at the, the example of Christ, another way of, of living this out is evangelistic. Definitely seeing all people as children of, of God that we don't get to write people off. That as people hurt us, and they're going to, and they have, and sometimes we will. But in those painful moments, we are still called to love all. We don't, as Christians, we don't get exceptions or waivers for people that we are forgiven for not loving, that we're allowed, sorry, we are forgiven. We're not allowed to not love people if we're following the example of Christ to not close the gate on them. Now again, I will preface that or qualify that a little bit with, I do feel like there are people who are in abusive relationships or have those types of situations that can be excessively painful and, and being able to navigate how God's working and healing in your life. And again, not being careless and not being stupid to recognize that we can still love each other and love people and come to a place of healing while not being exposed to abuse. So I'll put that out there. But God calls us to, in the guidance of the Holy Spirit, to love all. Another way in which we can be vulnerable like Christ is, is personal relational, being real with each other, being a confessional church. As we look at Christ, we look at the life of Christ and, and how Jesus lived. We look at the disciples, we look at the people around him and the ways in which the church became the church. They didn't get it right. It took a lot of correction, took a lot of time for them to be able to discover what it really meant to be followers of Christ, both individually 
and as a group. We look at uh, Paul, we talked about that in our group. Paul, the descent into greatness. Paul's descent into greatness. He starts with all that puffery, right? With all that, that power and prestige and, and all the vindictiveness that he had and his legalism. And he descends into greatness. If you read his letters, you start to see him exhibit and speak in, in more humbling tones. He begins to understand more and more, even after he gets knocked off his horse, it's not truly apparent how far he was and how far he is the person from true Christ-likeness. So as he embraces that, as he lives that out, he becomes more and more embracing that in the letters he writes, more and more humble in, in who he sees himself and more and more bold in who he sees Christ in him. At the church, we should be able to share about anything that we're going through with each other. I hope that you have at least one person, at least hopefully a couple people in this church that you can be together with, that you can be confessional with, that you can be vulnerable with, be authentic with. That yes, it's not realistic for us to come up and, and go through all of our dirty laundry here on stage with a microphone, I get that. We're still people, we still think in those terms where we have those guards up. But I think a step is for all of us to find that confessional partner or a group where we can be real with, where we can acknowledge where we're at and both the highs and the lows in our church family to take those steps forward so that we can share in, in the things that we're really going with. You go to a doctor, right? And they have your heart, your, your, your history, they have everything about you exposed and sometimes, yeah, you have to strip down and let the doctor do what they're gonna do and see what they need to see and know what they need to know. That's vulnerable. Those gowns that they make you wear, ugh, right? Vulnerable, especially in the back, bad. In that vulnerability though, the doctors are able to do what they need to do, to bring healing and to move forward in our lives. We should be able to be authentic in the church about where we're at. And yeah, with that comes accountability. And maybe that's why we drag our feet. Because if we share as we're honest, there's a cost to that. It becomes aware there's light shone, that's shown on the, the areas in our life that need work. And we understand very well what that means. And that can be hard. But we're still called to that. Ministerially, and the idea of, and I mean that in terms of serving others, loving others, taking care for others, to be able to serve and sacrifice for those around us. If someone takes your coat, give them your shirt too. If someone slaps you in the face, turn so they can get the other side. That's what we're called to. I don't think that's being hyperbolic. I don't think that's being extreme. I think that's literally Jesus telling us, yeah, it's gonna cost you something to follow me. That as you serve and care for others, you're gonna get hurt. You're gonna get robbed a little bit. You're gonna be made the fool sometimes. And yes, we need to be good stewards with our resources. We need to be discerning. But we're still called to be vulnerable. We're still called to take risk. So if you're really listening and you, you, you might be doing the mental math of all the ways in which being vulnerable works and the cost of it all and realizing that that could be pretty steep. The plant has the, the guard up because it doesn't want to be trampled. As we take down our own guard, as we become more vulnerable, we can get trampled. We can get broken. We can have people who, who hurt us. As we let people in the gate, some of them will have 
ill or ill will or ill acts to us. Sure, as a church, as an individuals, absolutely. And we do recognize that, that cost is steep. That's why it's the cross, to follow Jesus in that example. But there's a much higher cost to pretending. There's a much higher cost to ignoring wounds, much higher cost to shallow relationships where we're just faking it. There's a lot higher cost to shallow faith where we're going through the actions because we know the right answers. We've been in church all our lives. We know what they're supposed to say and what we're supposed to do, but we don't grow. There's a cost to that. And brick by brick, we're protecting ourselves. We're really trapping ourselves. But the great news is in verse 9. We come back to that hope. We, we light the candle of hope. We, we participate in Advent, that light that comes into whatever, whatever, no matter how dark we got this sanctuary. I wish we could. I wish we could make this sanctuary pitch black and you just see that candle. That candle would still, it would get brighter in that darkness. It would be easier to see. So in that, we see the hope in that last part of the passage. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So as we see that, we see that good news. We see that great news in, in the example of the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It won and it continues to win. And that is our example. It's a high example. It's a costly example. But if last time when I spoke was about embracing God's love and having that move us from a life of fear, today is about living that life out more fully and humbly and being willing to see who Christ is and who we are. And in that we are achieve real greatness by simply following Christ's example. We're going to take communion today, and I'm going to call up the servers and the ushers. As they come forward, uh, every time I take communion, I kind of get stuck on this one passage that comes to my mind. It's 1 Corinthians 11. It's a main communion passage. It corrects how the early followers of Jesus uh, in Corinth, participate in communion. It calls on them to examine and judge themselves so that they would participate in the, the sacrament unified together in Christ and their love and care for each other. They were divided. They had classes. They had people who were better than others, people who had and who didn't have. And Paul corrects them. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4, the beginning, right before this passage that we read today, immediately preceding the text, also calls for unity in Christ, that we should be able to come together and love each other, that in communion we have that community and that unity combined. But I do, I always come back to that 1 Corinthians 11 passage, that these lessons during communion, because like driving a car, it's better to be constantly vigilant and make tiny corrections every time than to swerve, right? Ever driven with a new teenage driver? All right? I'm reminded of this every time I take communion so that I don't have to swerve, hopefully, later. That as we look at the body of Christ, that we will be able to love each other and come together and edify each other and lift each other up. To have honest consideration, if there's anything that's separating us, 
from the body of Christ, whether they're here or not. As we look at ourselves and the ways we live. And yeah, it's a good time to give yourself time to consider any ways in which you're being separated from godliness. We give special attention to the ways in which we relate as the body of Christ, though. And in that, to seek repentance and vulnerability and accept forgiveness and correction in our course. We're going to distribute the elements and then we will hold those and take communion together.